right, you guys can go ahead and have a seat. How about uh, that worship? That's pretty, pretty awesome, huh? Uh, one of my favorite things in worship is when I can hear people singing. And uh, so that's, that's, for me, the most powerful part of worship. And so when you kind of take all the instruments away and it's just voices, you can really get a hold of that. And I think it encourages us to sing when we can hear that our neighbor sings uh, almost as poorly as we do. And so we, t- not talking about anybody that was sitting next to me, I just want to be clear, <laughs> just in general speaking, I was not pointing any fingers or anything like that. Um, although people might point fingers at me sometimes when I sing. Uh, and then laugh afterwards usually. But uh, anyway, I'll just stop talking about that. Let's go to Luke chapter 9, something way more edifying, way more encouraging. Uh, Luke chapter 9 is where we find ourselves. Again, we're working our way through the New Testament. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring one to you. Uh, But uh, working our way through the New Testament, one chapter at a time, in an attempt to get through the New Testament in five years. We're in the Gospel of Luke right now, chapter 9, and uh, we're starting to watch Jesus on this journey as he heads towards his crucifixion. Uh, Anytime we listen to a sermon, we want to be asking ourselves a couple of questions. The first is, what is God saying in his word? The second is, then what am I going to personally do about it? Uh, what What I love about preaching Uh, is I don't know the needs of most of the people. I might know an individual need or something like that, but I I can't possibly know everybody's needs. Uh, But the Word of God preached can be taken by the Spirit of God and applied to anybody's individual heart, if you're willing to listen, if you're in the habit of listening to the Word so that you can hear from it. And so I would just suggest that as we approach this, you would just ask that question of God. Uh, Lord, would you show me what it is you want to say to me personally through your Word today so that I can respond uh, in worship to you? Uh, In this chapter, uh, as I kind of briefly mentioned, there's actually nine different events there. And so what I'm going to be trying to do, rather than trying to take nine sermons and just quickly give you nine devotional thoughts, what I'm going to try to do is find a couple of threads that run through all of these events. Uh, That thread is largely this, that uh, Jesus the Christ, God's chosen one, is headed to Jerusalem where he will be killed and ascend to heaven. And what you're going to find as you go through these events, uh, that about half of this uh, passage is going to be focused on this question, who is Jesus? And that's going to come up a couple of different times in there. First Herod is going to ask it, uh, and then Jesus is going to ask it of his disciples. And then at the transfiguration, God himself is going to proclaim that this is who Jesus is. He is the Son of God, the Chosen One. And so we're going to see how that plays out. But at the same time, Jesus is going to be a alerting his disciples that he's on his way now to Jerusalem where he's going to suffer and he's going to die. And so he'll tell his disciples that in a private moment. But even at the transfiguration, as he's meeting with Moses and Elijah, they're going to be talking to him about his departure once he gets to Jerusalem. And then throughout the events that follow this, Jesus is going to remind his disciples of his plans to go to Jerusalem and eventually ascend into heaven. Uh, Now, what is uh, kind of interesting to me is I broke this down into an outline and tried to simplify it. Uh, There's a lot of overlap there. And so the first 36 verses seem to be focusing on Jesus, who he is. And then those last verses uh, seem to be focusing on his direction to Jerusalem. But there is that overlap in the middle where Jesus is with his disciples in solitude. And it seems like God is preparing him. And he is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen. That this will be, uh, for them, uh, difficult to understand. It'll be traumatic to experience. But ultimately, it'll be powerful, so powerful that it will save. So, uh, maybe I should just start reading and stop talking now. 
uh, verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing uh, for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even take two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done, taking with him Uh, Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them, he began to speak to them about the kingdom of God and curing those uh, who had need of healing. So this is where Jesus is going to now send out his 12 apostles. Uh, This will be repeated, by the way, in chapter 10, but instead of the 12, he's going to send out the 70. But he sends them out with the power in order uh, to heal as well as the the mission to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God. And so you see there in verse 2, that's what he tells them, go out and proclaim the kingdom of God. Verse 6, it says they go out and they preach the good news, the gospel, the good news about the kingdom of God. Uh, Just briefly on the kingdom of God. Uh, In some ways, it's a very self-explanatory term, right? Uh, It's the kingdom of God, and any kingdom has to have both a king and a domain, right? And so the king is God, The domain we'll find here and in other places is actually heaven. So the king of heaven is this this kingdom that's going to be proclaimed to the people. But of course, every kingdom needs one more thing that's not as clear in the name. Every kingdom has citizens. And so what he's sending these guys out to do is to proclaim the good news about the kingdom in order to recruit new citizens to the kingdom of heaven. And so uh, as, as uh, I saw a post on Facebook recently this uh, last week, it's actually a t-shirt that says, uh, I'm not from here, I'm just on a, a recruiting mission. And it was talking from a believer's perspective that this is not my home, I'm just recruiting for my real home. That's kind of the idea that Jesus has for these particular disciples, these apostles as he sends them out. They're out there proclaiming the good news so that people would begin to follow God and ultimately populate the kingdom of heaven. Uh, What's weird about this is Luke interjects in the middle of this. He sends them out. He then uh, brings them back in verse 10, but he interjects in the middle of this, verse 7 through 9, kind of what seems like an out-of-place situation here where it tells us that uh, Herod, King Herod at this time, Herod the Tetrarch, so not Herod the Great, but Herod the Tetrarch, uh, is wondering, who is this man? And there's kind of these rumors about Jesus that are circulating. They're trying to figure out who he is because of the amazing things that he's been doing and then now even sending these people out proclaiming the kingdom of God. And so they've got these various theories. Some believe that this is John the Baptist risen from the dead. He had to rise from the dead because Herod had him beheaded. So he also has to rise from the head, but that's a whole different thing. John has to rise from the dead. Some people think he's the Old Testament prophet Elijah, 
Others just think he's one of the other Old Testament prophets who's maybe risen again, maybe Moses or something like that. But, but the point is, because of the great works he's been doing and the amazing teaching that he's been invested in, people are starting to talk so much so that it's risen all the way to the, to the levels of the highest leadership in the land at that point. Everybody wants to know who Jesus is. And so that question is one that's going to come up throughout this passage. Of course, we'll see it here. Jesus will bring it up as well. And we'll see it again at the transfiguration as I think it is God who's going to answer the question for them. But as they go out preaching the kingdom of God, uh, they have some success going out and preaching. And then the apostles are going to return uh, to give Jesus an account of everything that happened. And so Jesus is going to try to take them away. He's just going to say, let's, let's get away for a little while so we can kind of uh, do what in the military we would call it a hot wash. You know, we have to talk about what happened and make sure that everybody has a good understanding of what happened, what we can do better. You know, it's just kind of this opportunity for them to get away for a moment from all the craziness of their ministry. Uh, maybe today we would call it a ministry retreat or something like that. Uh, but he's going to bring the disciples so that they get away. So he's going to take them to the city of Bethsaida, which happens to be uh, Philip and Andrew and Peter's hometown. Uh, unfortunately, the crowds knew where he was going and they followed him. Uh, and so instead of having this time alone initially, he's going to have to continue to do ministry. So Jesus is going to do the same thing he asked the disciples to do, the apostles. He's going to begin speaking to the crowds about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. So this is just going to be kind of an ongoing thing in Jesus' ministry that is his popularity is going to make it difficult for him to get away, to have kind of those quiet moments. Now, I want you to understand this uh, from his perspective. Uh, number one, just it can be exhausting. The things he's doing would be exhausting, right? Uh, but number two would be this. If he wants to really train up his disciples, it's really hard to do that in, a, in front of a large group of people. He would really like to kind of get them away because he's about to be gone from the earth. He's about to be taken up into heaven. He's going to die. He's going to resurrect and he's going to ascend into heaven. And these guys are the guys that are going to have to proclaim the message going forward. So he needs to spend this time with them. But it's just very difficult because of the crowds that keep surrounding him. In verse 12 now, it says, The day was ending and the twelve came and said to him, Send the crowd away that we may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and uh, that they may go into the surrounding villages and countryside and find lodging and get something to eat. For here we are in a desolate place. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless perhaps we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down and eat in groups of about 50 each. They did so and had them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he blessed them and broke them and kept giving them to the disciples to set before the people. And they all ate and were satisfied and the broken pieces which they had left over were picked up 12 baskets full. So this is the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and it is, again, it's an interesting situation. It's getting to be the end of the day now. Again, Jesus wanted to get alone with his disciples. So his disciples make the suggestion, hey, it's the end of the day. They're going to be hungry. The crowds are going to need some place to stay for the night. Let's just send them away. As if it was that easy, right? Jesus tried to run away from these people. They followed him everywhere he went. As if he's just going to stand up and say, okay, that's enough for today, folks. They didn't care. They're so amazed by him. They're going to follow him wherever he goes, which... 
is a great habit to get into, in case you're curious, so just to follow him wherever he goes. Uh, so Jesus says something to the disciples that I think would have been a little bit uh, alarming to them. They might start to wonder about his uh, sanity or something, because he turns to them and says, you give them to something to eat. So they start to argue with Jesus, look, we, we've got five loaves of bread, we've got two fish, you can't make very many fish sticks with five loaves of bread and two fish. It's just not, there's just not enough food to go around. So Jesus instructs them to divide the people into groups of 50 and have them sit uh, all throughout the the grounds there. There's 5,000 men in the group, which uh, likely is an indication that there's there's, uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people even beyond that, depending on how many folks were with those 5,000 men. He sets them up in groups of 50, and he tells them to do this so that they would uh, be able to eat. Have them sit down to eat in groups of about 50 each. So imagine the disciples now have no idea how they're going to feed these people. They've got to set them up in groups of 50 and just say, hey, we're going to eat here in a few minutes. Why don't you 50 sit together and you 50 sit together? First of all, I'm just impressed by the logistics of this. This would have taken me a week and a half to divide these people up into groups of 50. I would have had like, well, let me get a spreadsheet. I got to think this through. That one's got 49. That'll never do. What do we do with these extra people over here? I would have had a whole mistake going on in my head. But they managed to make this happen apparently fairly quickly. And uh, so uh, Jesus then begins to take these five loaves and these two fish And as he blesses them and breaks them, they continue to miraculously provide for the people to the point where thousands of people are fed by these five loaves of bread and and two fish. It's a miracle. Uh, It's beyond understanding. It's not something that, I mean, to me, that's the definition of a miracle, right? Anything that shouldn't happen, that God makes happen, that's a miracle. It's outside of the natural uh, way of things happening. I was um, listening to somebody this last week and they said, well, I can't believe in God because miracles are impossible. And I said, well, you, you just defined a miracle. Like, congratulations. That's why God's, that's why I believe in God. That's why I worship God. Because he can do the impossible. It's the exact opposite of why this person couldn't worship God. But uh, in this uh, particular situation, he does this miraculous thing. Not just providing the food, but he provided so much that afterwards there's 12 baskets full of food that they were to pick up afterwards. Which meant now each one of the apostles had their own miraculous basket of food to remind them of the power of God. And to remind them that Jesus first said to them, you feed the people. In other words, the indication from Jesus was that he intended that they would be able to do this at some point. Now that's a little bit difficult for me to grasp personally. I'm fine with God doing the impossible. I'm not really fine with Sean doing the impossible. For some reason, I've always struggled with that and always assumed that was for other people. What I do find, though, interesting in this passage for Sean When I see this, I see a picture of church, of God providing to the apostles who provide to the groups of 50. That's the picture of church that I see, that the word of God is the thing that we're serving today, and it's provided for us by God through me to our group of 50. That to me is the picture I always see in this. And there is something quite miraculous in that, I think. Miraculous that we have the word of God, miraculous that God will speak through people and his word, and miraculous that people gather together 
just to hear us go through a book like this. I can't think of any other book in the history of the world that's, that's quite like this in that sense. There's just nothing like it. It's powerful. It's the provision there. But we want to continue on to kind of keep with the flow of things. In verse 18 it says, And it happened, uh, I'm sorry, I've jumped way too far. Um, no, verse 18, I jumped right to the right exact spot. And it happened that while he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? They answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others that one of the prophets of old has risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now remember the question uh, that Herod asked in verse 9, who is this man? Jesus is now going to ask his disciples a similar question, and that is, who do the people say that I am? And they're going to give the same answer in verse 19 that was given in verse 8. Some say it's John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others that it's one of the prophets of old who has risen again. Now Jesus says, okay, that's great, that's who the people say I am, but he looks at them now and he says, but who do you say that I am? What's important for him now is not what the rumors about him are. What do you individually say about who Jesus was? And this is a powerful answer from Peter. Peter says that he is the Christ of God, the Messiah. The the word Christ there uh, means anointed. Uh, The anointed one in the Old Testament was a reference to the Messiah that the people of the nation of Israel were waiting for. You see, Peter and I think the other apostles were truly beginning to recognize Jesus as the Messiah, even if they didn't quite recognize all that that meant yet and all that he was going to have to do. They were recognizing that that's who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ of God. And of course, it's the question that I always want us to be able to answer for ourselves. Who is Jesus to us? And that's where we have to make this determination. And I think many people have tried to come up with lots of different ideas of who he, who he is, whether he's a, a great teacher uh, or, or whether he's a, 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 um, a just this uh, enigma that just happened to be uh, an icon out in the world, a famous person. Uh, for us, it's more than that. He is the Messiah, the one that God sent to be our Savior. That's who he is. He's the Christ. That's who Jesus is to us as as believers, and hopefully that's who he is to you as an individual believer. And it's at this point where Jesus starts to warn them of what's going to happen. Uh, This is really kind of a downer for their big disciple party, by the way. Up till this point, following Jesus has been pretty fun. 
I mean, they've seen some amazing things, healings, resurrections from the dead, providing food for thousands of people, crowds everywhere they went. I mean, in a sense, they were kind of living the rock star lifestyle of that time. Like everybody wanted to hear from them. Everywhere they went, they were hanging out with Jesus, like the most popular, well-known guy in the region. Everybody wanted a piece of this. And now Jesus is going to turn their attention and say, just so you know, I I just need you to know this. Now that you recognize who I am, I am the Christ of God, I, I need you to know, and I don't want you to tell anyone else this yet, but I have to go and suffer many things. I have to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and then I'll be killed, and then I'll be raised. Who's with me? That's what he says in verse 23. If anyone wishes to come with me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Who's with me? You see, it was all fun and games when we're healing people and raising the dead. Is it going to be as exciting when I'm the dead or you're the dead? You see, what's about to happen to Jesus, what's this all leading up to, is a much more scary process. The prospect is much more different for the disciples. With the knowledge of what he's doing in verse 22, he tells them in verse 23, take up your cross and follow me. Because if you aren't willing to surrender your life for Jesus, then you won't have the gain that comes from that. If you're not willing to speak the name of or proclaim the words of Jesus, then why should he speak your name? It's a warning to them. He's making it a lot more serious for them at this point. And I do think there are times in our Christian life where we need to do that, by the way. Sometimes it's pretty easy to just kind of get by in the Christian world. I go to church, it's kind of nice. I've got lots of friends there. I've got a coffee shop and we sing. Story time which is sometimes includes nap time, depending on how I always struggled with that sometimes. I think that's the whole reason God has me preaching is so I'll stay awake for the sermon. <laughs> but you kind of just kind of get through the routine, but every once in a while you have to kind of connect yourself to this reality. That what we believe by faith is something that we would be willing to surrender everything for. We're not asked to do it often. It's not a normal occurrence in our life where every single day we have to surrender everything. But we sure should be prepared to at any given moment. You have to kind of build your brain up to that. You have to be asked the question every once in a while, what are you willing to surrender for the things of God? How far would you go for Him? If you've never asked yourself, this is a weird question. It came up in an elders meeting one time. If, if somebody holds a gun to your head and says, denounce Jesus, would you? Now, this was what was great. Everybody in the room said, absolutely. The next question, if somebody held a gun to your spouse's head or to your children's head, would you denounce Jesus? Now, that takes a little bit more thought all of a sudden. Again, I've never seen that happen in, in Cheyenne, Wyoming, just so you know. This is not something you should expect as a daily occurrence. But there's a preparation in your heart that you're prepared 
to do what Jesus did for you, to suffer and to die. But the joy of that is, in the same way that although Jesus died, he resurrected to eternal life, that's the promise we have. That we would resurrect to eternal life. We, in that sense, are like him. Verse 28, while they're now in this more isolated, solitudinal place, it says, some eight days after these things, uh, after sayings, uh, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. And behold, two men were talking with him and they were Moses and Elijah, who appearing in glory were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And as these were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and reported to no one in those days any of the things which they had seen. So this is known as the transfiguration. It just means that he changed. In this case, his appearance changed. His face became different. His clothing was white and it was gleaming. Uh, it's this transformation that happens to Jesus as they're up on this mountain, uh, gathered together for the purpose of prayer. And wouldn't you know it that uh, the disciples fell asleep during the prayer meeting, just like they're going to do at the prayer meeting before his crucifixion. And Moses and Elijah, the Old Testament prophets, show up. Which is pretty cool, you have to admit. This is not an everyday occurrence. It's also interesting because who did they think Jesus was? They thought he was Elijah, one of the Old Testament prophets. Well, in this particular case, Jesus is now meeting with Moses and Elijah. And they're talking to him in verse 31. And this is that connection. That's one of those lines of thought that are moving through this chapter. Well, they're talking about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Do you see the thread that Luke is weaving through these? It's interesting as you go through uh, this particular chapter, um, Luke is generally known as the guy who adds a lot of details to the stories we've heard in the other Gospels. But in chapter 9, it's the opposite. He's going to just kind of rapid fire list out of these stories, but he's going to put a lot less detail. The thing that he's doing that's different is he's, he's slowly putting this line of thought through there. That Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to die, and this other line of thought, who is Jesus? Which, by the way, is going to be answered quite vocally, quite powerfully by God in verse 35 when he says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Now, who's the audience? James and John and Peter. This wasn't one that was for everybody, like at Jesus' baptism, same thing happened. That was for the whole crowd. But this was a specific, again, there's this drawing together of the disciples. There's this preparation for them 
to continue on the work that Jesus has. And it's beginning to get more and more serious as they now have this fearful moment as they're trying to go into this crowd. It says it was over, this, this crowd, this cloud with an L, and it begins to overshadow them in verse 34. It says they were afraid and then they heard the voice of God. Uh, I'll be honest, I've never heard the voice of God in that way. Uh, I never have. Uh, I hear his voice in his word. I hear his voice from his people. I, I hear his voice in creation, but I've never heard him speak to me like this. And I imagine this was pretty new for Peter, James, and John, except they were probably in the habit of hearing from Jesus, who is God. <laughs> but this would have been different to them. This was the voice of God. This is a thing that has happened uniquely a handful of times in history. It's not something we... We hear every day. I actually have had this long-term struggle as well because I have people that will often say these types of things to me. You know, God spoke to me and told me I'm supposed to do this. And I try not to be sarcastic because I don't want to downplay what has happened in their life, which likely is genuine. But I want to say, oh yeah, what verse was that? Because that's how he speaks to me. This was different. The voice of God was heard. It's powerful. They heard the voice of God. They had their moment of solitude with Jesus, their preparation. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, proclaiming that Jesus must go to Jerusalem and die. God himself agreeing with them that Jesus is the chosen one. On the next day in verse 37, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was still, appro still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground, threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement, and it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this statement. Well, here we have another healing, uh, nothing unique in this. There's lots of healings in the New Testament, but uh, it was unique to the father whose son was healed. It was pretty powerful to him. His son, his only son, was having seizures and convulsions that would throw him to the ground. He'd foam at the mouth. And then it would say, the seizure wouldn't leave except with difficulty. And in the process, it would leave the boy mauled. Now I think about the misery that this must be for this parent. And for the son, by the way, I should point that out. Probably wasn't so grand for him either. But the misery that this must be for this parent. 
And so when he sees Jesus, he takes his shot and he cries out. It says he shouted, teacher, I beg you. So Jesus pays attention to him. And the guy points out an interesting fact. I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not. You see, the other guys, the other nine, were down at the bottom of the hill while Jesus was up top meeting with Moses and Elijah with three other disciples. And they couldn't cast this demon out of this kid. Again, I find myself connected to the disciples who couldn't. Because having prayed for a number of people in moments of, of, of difficulty, I can't say that I have great success. <laughs> I do think God has healed people that I have prayed for, but not like this where I'm the exclusive person praying. <laughs> the church is praying all over the world for this one. I just happen to be one of them. And so I just connect with these disciples who couldn't. Now Jesus' words here seem a little bit harsh. How long will I put up with this perverse generation, unbelieving and perverted generation. How long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. And then he heals him. Again, Luke leaves out all kinds of details, and I'm thinking there must be an intention for that. I don't think the purpose of Luke putting this in here was to tell us about the healing, but Jesus does in fact heal this this young man who, by the way, in that moment is slammed to the ground and goes into a convulsion, but Jesus rebukes the unclean spirit. In this case, his sickness, his convulsions, and his seizures were caused by demonic entities. I don't think every seizure is demonic, but I think we're foolish to think that no seizure is demonic, that all seizures are somehow medical. I don't get to decide which ones, but I pray both ways just in case. And I go to the doctor and I pray <laughs> that the unclean spirit would be gone and that they would be healed. And that's what happens to this kid. But everybody else is marveling at this, it says. They're amazed in verse 43 at the greatness of God. They marvel at all that Jesus was doing. But in the moment of everybody else being excited, he turns to his disciples and he says, let these words sink into your ears. It's kind of like he's like tapping him on the head, like, get this through your thick skull. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. He needs them to understand that he's leaving. And while he's gone, they are his image on this earth. And by the way, the same is true for us today. That we who are believers in Jesus Christ, we are now his image on this earth until he returns again. We need to represent him well. They didn't quite understand what was going on. Uh, and again, it seems interesting to me uh, that we have in this next section here, uh, they begin to, to argue about how great they are. Jesus just healed somebody. They couldn't do it, and now they're going to say, which one of us is the greatest? The greatest at failing? Well, that would be all of you. You've done well. 
Verse 46, an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For the one who is uh, least among all of you, this is the one who is great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. So, again, Luke is taking just little bitty portions of some things that we've heard in other Gospels that are further explained, but he puts them all together. It starts with this argument amongst the disciples about which one of them is greatest, and Jesus pulls in a little child beside him. He says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him. And the one who is least among all of you, this is the one who is great. So object lesson the disciples are arguing and squabbling like a bunch of children about who's the greatest. And Jesus pulls a child beside him and says, the greatest is the least. In other words, they shouldn't be fighting for the top. They should be fighting for the bottom. They should be fighting to be the servant of all. That's who they should be. But it's, it's just a, a mixture within their character. It's this struggle. And it goes on to even say uh, that in the midst of that, uh, that they're sending now... Um, uh, that uh, he, he sent messengers to haunt. I'm sorry, I skipped a whole section there. There he is. Uh, John then answers Jesus and says, hey, I saw somebody casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him. That's how great we are. And Jesus is like, what's wrong with you? First of all, you couldn't cast out demons in my name just a minute ago. Now you see somebody that's actually doing it? You see how Jesus, it, it feels to me like is getting a little bit frustrated with his disciples here. Which on the human side of Jesus, I like to connect with that. To remind myself that he had to, to go through the frustration of other people in the world around him. And he's trying to, in this moment, get their attention. It's, it's so important. He's headed to Jerusalem. Or as it says in verse 51, he is determined to go to Jerusalem. He's determined to go there. That's where he wants to go. Because that's where he's going to ascend up into heaven. But in the meantime, he's trying to get this ragtag group of guys all on the same page. And so then they go to another town. And it's a Samaritan town, and they're on their way to Jerusalem, and the Samaritans and the Jews don't get along so well. There's a long history there that we don't have time for. But the this, this city says, no, we're not going to let you Jews pass through here. James and John, they're known as the son of, sons of thunder for a reason. Hey, Jesus, how about we call fire down from heaven and consume them? Now, I think Jesus' first answer should have been, yeah, try it. You just couldn't cast out a demon a minute ago. What's wrong with you? You can't bring fire down from heaven. But instead, Jesus says, man, you're, you're just missing it. You're missing it. I didn't come to destroy people. 
I came to save them. I can see a mounting frustration as Jesus, as he gets closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. He knows that he's leaving and he needs these guys who are with him to grasp that they're going to be the image bearers, that they're going to be the proclaimers of the gospel after he's gone. And sometimes you you have to get serious with these guys. But this is where he's headed, it says in verse 51. He's headed to Jerusalem. And he needs them to truly understand what it's going to be for them to follow after him. Well, they're not the only ones. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. He said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand on the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. There's a a new seriousness here, isn't there? First one guy says, I'll follow you. And Jesus says, well, it's not going to be pretty. We're not going to be staying at fancy hotels. It's going to be difficult. Again, he knows. He knows what's ahead of him. And he knows what's ahead of those who are following him. Many of those who will be early disciples of Jesus Christ will be martyred for their faith. He has to prepare them for this. Again, I don't think that's necessarily uh, the norm for all of us believers today, but it's the norm for some believers today. There are believers in this world who will be martyred for their faith. There are believers in this world who will lose house and home and everything. There are those who will be specially sent out by God in situations that are going to be difficult and heartbreaking. I've been thinking about this with uh, all the stuff going on in Ukraine right now. And the president has asked all the American citizens to leave Ukraine. And uh, in wonderful fashion, he he promised them that he would not come get them if things went bad. And I'm thinking about my friend Benjamin, who lives in Ukraine as a Christian missionary from the United States. Do I call him and say, you got to get out of there, man? Or do I call him and say, I'm going to pray for you while you stay and do the things that God has called you to do? I don't know which one to say. I don't want to, I don't want to distract him from God's mission. I want to encourage him. But who knows what the future has for him? There's people that that's a real statement to. And for this group of guys that were about to follow Jesus in this moment, that was a, that was a real concern. Jesus looks at another guy and says, you, you follow me. And that guy says, well, I've got a funeral coming up this week. Uh, Could I uh, take care of that first? Jesus says, again, it sounds harsh. Let the dead bury the dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Again, I don't think that's normative. I don't think he's asking all of us to skip funerals and go preach instead. It's not a normative thing, but in the seriousness of this circumstance, in this situation, he needed them to see how important it was at this point. The Messiah is literally there right now. He's right there in their midst. 
people need to know. He's getting all of the attention on this before he goes to the cross. So that the people will be turned towards the cross. And realize that their salvation came through his death. Another one says to him, I'll follow you, Lord. First, let me go home and say goodbye to those at the house. I guess my first question would be, why weren't they there anyway? Like, you're going to see Jesus. Like, you guys stay home. I'm going to go see Jesus today. What? Come on, man. You can do better, right? But Jesus, again, it sounds harsh, but listen to what he says. No one, after putting his hand on the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. He he needs the disciples to take their discipleship seriously. And although each one of those circumstances may not be normative for us, it is instructive for us that we need to take our discipleship seriously because we are now those who proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. That's who we are. We're the proclaimers of the gospel message. And I know that's difficult. I'm not a natural evangelist, just so you know. Uh, I'm pretty good when everybody comes to me like this and says, preach the gospel, Sean. Oh, well, that's what you want. That's great. Put me in a restaurant full of people. I'm the wise guy. You put me in a workplace. I'm too busy to do that. It's not natural for me. And I'm, I'm the guy that really struggles like, to just change the conversation. Like There's some people that are just so good at that. Like, you know... You're talking about breakfast cereal, and next thing you know, you're crying in your breakfast cereal, giving your life to Jesus Christ, and you didn't even notice. It's just like, just people are just smooth. Not me. I'll sit there for two hours in a conversation thinking, how do I turn this to Jesus? How do I turn this to Jesus? How do I turn this to Jesus? The last ditch effort, can I pray for your cereal? <laughs> it's just not natural for me, but this is who I'm supposed to be. And so we find ways to proclaim the gospel. Sometimes we can do it in very overt ways. Sometimes we do it through our lifestyle, but but we need to find ways. That we are the proclaimers of the good news of the kingdom of God. We have that truth. There are people out there who don't have it. You know those people. And you know the ultimate outcome of their life is eternal destiny separated from God in hell because of their sins. There's a seriousness to that. I'm not asking you all to become preachers or missionaries, but at a certain level, all of us need to be proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In our home, to our kids, to our spouses, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our communities, in some way, we need to get on board with that mission. Maybe it's a simple door hanger like Jennifer put together out there. Maybe it's the regular habit of praying for people that you know are unsaved and just waiting for that moment when God brings just that perfect moment for you to share the gospel with them. And one year for Christmas, Sheila and I uh, bought everybody that we knew a copy of the Jesus video VHS style because that's what it was back in the day. And we wrote up a letter to all of them and told them why we gave that to them for Christmas. And we listed out just what we believed about Jesus Christ. First time we had ever done anything to share the gospel, by the way. We did it big. We were going to go big or go home. And we didn't live in Cheyenne anymore, so we weren't going to see those people. It was fine, right? But everybody we knew got one of those. 
you find some way. Maybe you direct somebody to a sermon that you heard that was great. Or maybe you just have that conversation about, man, I was at church last Sunday. This is what my pastor was talking about. This is what I got about it. This is what I'm going to try to do about it. What about you? Well, I didn't go to church last Sunday. Oh, you're welcome to come to my church sometime. I'll, I'll sit right next to you. I'll buy you breakfast or lunch, depending on which service you come to. But you guys would buy them breakfast beforehand or after. You just invest in them. It's simple ways. And then you prepare yourself for the next week. You're going to read chapter 10 every day next week. If you're really, really, really a good, good Christian, you can try to memorize a verse out of chapter 10. But you're going to prepare your heart to receive the word of God so he can tell you what to do next so that you can walk in obedience to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful for our time in the Word today. Lord, I am uh, always concerned at the beginning of the week when I see a passage. But throughout the week, I I just believe you've always been faithful to reveal the things that need to be said uh, to me and through me. And Lord, I trust today that you're faithful to be speaking to the hearts of individuals who are here today. Lord, I would pray that your spirit is speaking to each one what they need to hear. For some, your spirit dwells within them because they're believers. Giving them now a roadmap to a response. You're putting it on their heart. You're putting it on their mind. You're giving them a a way forward. For others, Lord, who, who haven't received you, Lord, your Holy Spirit comes alongside them, draws them ever closer to you. Lord, I pray that they would want to become citizens of the kingdom of God. That they would want to become proclaimers of the gospel message. Father, would you set up those opportunities for us this week? Uh, Above and beyond us determining to become proclaimers, Lord, I'm asking that you would bring circumstances and situations into our life where it become clear that we have a chance to intervene there to just share what we believe and let your spirit do the rest. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.